Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Knollcast. As always, we will start the podcast by thanking our longtime sponsors, Louisiana Hot Sauce, three simple ingredients, one fantastic product, something that I uh, I may even use too much of, uh, but a fantastic product, a great partner for us. And uh, as always, we thank our friends in New Iberia, Louisiana. And Bud, we jump into this podcast with the full acknowledgement that we are somewhat in uh, in one of the lulls of the calendar where you're uh, coming off signing day, you're looking towards spring and uh, and then projecting towards next year, but still have a decent amount of stuff to talk about. And uh, we'll, we'll jump into it and see where this episode takes us. You know, we are in some lulls. Uh, thank God Coach Norvell staff came on. I was looking at our download numbers uh, this morning, and we are just about equal uh, right now as what we had been the last two Februarys. And by my count, we still have like 11 days left. So it's going to be a pretty nice month for, for the Nolcast, and hopefully uh, it's been an entertaining month for the listeners. Uh, we'll also be uh, coming up. We're probably going to do our review, the freshman draft. We've not forgot, forgotten about that. I think one of us might be a big enough winner uh, to where we don't even need to calculate the special team snaps because there's just not enough possible special teams reps to make a difference. And you guys can guess who that winner is. I'm not going to give it away uh, and tell on myself there. But, yeah, let's go ahead and jump in uh, to a little – we have some football talk tonight. We have some recruiting talk. We have a little baseball uh, thought, uh, maybe a little basketball talk if, if, if we want to. The Knowles are obviously – uh, playing tonight, and uh, I'm I'm excited about this. So, first, what I want to lead off with within the last week or so, Bill Connolly, uh, now of ESPN, formerly my colleague at Espionation and, and uh, still a good friend of mine, put out his uh, SP Plus ratings, formerly S and P Plus, but obviously, you know, the stock exchange didn't did take too kindly uh, to that name. Uh, and ESPN also put out their own FPI, which I I don't think is as good as Bill's metric Ingram, but uh, they have the Knowles both uh, like 26th, 25th, 24th, 23rd, around there, depending on, on what metric of theirs you want to look at. But pretty much both uh, both metrics have FSU as a top 30 uh, quality team this year. Uh, but we're going to delay the discussion of that real quick because there is a question later on in our, our Q&A from, from our Patreon members. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of take tackle that a little bit later in the show. I wanted to tease that to open up. I think the thing I want to open really tonight with, though, the, the, the true opener, if you will, uh, our friend Brendan Sinone at Knowles 24-7 put out a piece discussing the offensive line for spring and maybe some goals and objectives for it. But what caught my eye was uh, the the depth chart for the spring. I, I, have you <laughs> taken a look at this? Yeah, it's, it's, very, um, it's very sobering, definitely. Uh, one of my favorite... Uh, information consumption over the last week uh, as far as a message board was uh, people responding to some of the videos that have come out to the offense alignment going through drills and uh, basically instructed everybody to have a have a warm shot of that that video clip anytime your the brain in your or the optimism in your brain starts to tell you to start thinking about you know nine ten eleven wins or whatever else it's it's the real conversation that we've had here for a while is is separating the immediate, which is a big concern, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it, and also evaluating the long-term overall trajectory of the program. One, I think we've been pretty unwavering about being concerned about, and two, uh, we're pretty optimistic as to as to where and 
uh, you know, what the the program is ultimately headed for. But right now, it's going to have to deal with people with the last names of Scott and Maurice Smith and Lord help us if Chaz Neal's a legitimate starter for you. I mean, there are hurdles here that you cannot get around <laughs> and are going to be uh, going to be a, a very tough process to kind of work through this offensive line in general. Yeah, there there are a lot of names here uh, who are either pretty clearly not ready to play at Florida State. Some of them I'm not sure will ever be ready to play at Florida State. And some have already proved that they just do not have the talent and ability to play at, at Florida State. And that's not me trying to be a jerk. It's just we, we, we've seen enough, right? Like the Mike Arnold video, and I'm not trying to dog Mike Arnold here because I, I, I saw a lot of people doing that and I don't want to do that. I don't know if that player was hurt or maybe he was just super tired. He's a big guy. Like, I don't know when that video was taken. He might have just been extra tired. Now, the effort, yeah, it looks really poor. I mean, there's no doubt about it in that video. And you can find that on on, on Twitter. But here's the thing. FSU has not had to rely on Mike Arnold to be a starter in well over a year. Mike Arnold is not projected in any way to be a starter. You have several key players out for this year for spring, and Mike Arnold is still not projected to even be a spring starter. Okay? So to me, I'm like, wait, Mike Arnold's a fifth-year senior. If I'm an FSU fan out there, I'm not going to waste any of my time talking about Mike Arnold, tweeting about Mike Arnold, whatever. I'm just going to say, hey, man, I hope this kid is on track to graduate, does so in the spring or maybe the summer, gets a job, whatever job he he, he can get with, with the major that, that he picked. And I hope he goes on to have a nice career outside of football and, and, and a nice life. Like, I'm not going to root for anybody uh, to, to fail. And I, my reaction would be much different to the Mike Arnold video if Mike Arnold was in any way being counted on to play. But he's not. Okay. He's not a tackle. He's not a guard. He's probably not even your second stringer guard. He's most likely like a third stringer guard. I'm just not going to get all, all worked up about Mike Arnold. I, I do have some concerns, though, about this offensive line for spring for a couple reasons. Number one, without Washington and without Dante Lucas, who are both hurt uh, and, and at least out for now, you're missing probably two of your, your most talented offensive linemen. Now, that's going to hurt a couple things. And you're right. I think it hurts cohesion, right, in terms of learning to work together as a unit. The lack of pass protection and the ability to open holes will hurt the offensive install a little bit. They're not going to be able to tell how well they, some of these plays work because you're just going to have immediate pressure in your backfield, probably above and beyond what you would normally have in, in, in a regular game situation because Florida State's defensive tackle group is is pretty solid. So you're not, I don't know how much of a true look you're going to be able to give yourself in the spring with this offensive line. This is going to be a challenge for Coach Atkins and Coach Norvell and Coach Dillingham, your offensive coordinator, uh, to work around this obstacle. On the flip side, though, and I know we were talking pre-show about this, this really isn't a great thing for your defense, right? Like you have several guys, defensive end type players, who you recruited, and you recruited them to play in a 3-4 defense. But now you're running the 4-3. If I'm Adam Fuller, if I'm John Papuchas, I would love to see what I have at the defensive end position beyond Robinson and Kando, and even honestly, including those guys. What kind of reps like are you going to be able to evaluate when your dudes are going against like a Chaz Neal or 
a love Taylor from FIU who probably at this level is more fit to play guard, but is going to have to play tackle for you out of necessity. Uh, or Jalen Goss, who hasn't put on really any significant weight. At, at, or Jay Williams or, or true freshman Zane Harris. I mean, what, what are you thinking about that? Yeah, I think it's definitely going to impact the the look that you can give your defense, the quality of reps that are taken, and also just, in, and not to circle back, but just in the individual development of the two uh, student-athletes that we're talking about. I mean, if there's anybody that I would have wanted uh, Atkins to be able to focus on and, and work as much hand-in-hand uh, -hand as possible, it would have been Dante Lucas, and, and Washington probably would have been one of uh, maybe three people I would have had in that second level of people, so... It's a big loss uh, as much as you can sustain a big loss uh, in spring. And we're obviously only talking about reps here in spring. But, uh, yeah, it's it's going to impact both the overall group development, the individual development. And uh, I don't think we're being too hyperbolic to have concerns as to the quality of reps to which you can give your defense as well. The good thing is that this is not what the lineup is projected to be come fall. If you're going to have these guys out, you'd much rather have them out in spring than fall. Duh. I mean, I think most people listening to this podcast would, would get that. And I just said it because it was obvious, I guess. Uh, but, man, it's still not a good thing. If this offensive line is going to be better this year, and I would project it to be better, Dante Lucas needs to be getting these reps. Instead, he's hurt. Washington needs to be getting these reps. I don't know when he's going to be back. That's not really a, a, a great thing for the development of this line, but hopefully they'll be able to sort out a couple answers in spring. Maybe you can get out of spring and figure out who your first string center is going to be. Will it be Bavion Johnson? Will it be Andrew Boselli? Maybe there's a dark horse candidate who nobody's thought about right now. That's kind of one of the beauties of a new staff is that some of these preconceived notions that we have about this, this team and these players, we're going to have to throw those out the window. Not in terms of how good of a player they are necessarily, but positional fit. These coaches are going to view some of these guys in different ways. And who knows? I mean, look, maybe they say, hey, we have to get our best three guys on the field at guard come fall. And maybe those best three are, I don't know, Lucas, Ira Henry, and Scott. You know, maybe you could slide Brady Scott to center. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Don't necessarily run to the message boards with Bud says Brady Scott's going to play center. You have to think about body types, athletic ability, smarts. That's, that's something that, that could happen. And something I would expect that they'll probably experiment with some um, come the spring. All right, we'll move real quickly to uh, the numbers that uh, we got. And nothing one just us. It was the uh, uh, certainly they were made and distributed in the public. But it uh, looks like Florida State's going to get about $5.1 million per game uh, with the LSU series. I still have concerns that this was made uh, two neutral site games. And I can certainly understand the uh, broader concerns of. Uh, you know, leaders of, of commerce in and around the Tallahassee area uh, with just the general propensity to give away very meaningful football games. At the same time, $5.1 million is, is hard to find. I should have had our producer or myself go back and and listen to this conversation that we had a couple years ago. But these games aren't, I don't think, are going to go anywhere if you're, if you're Florida State. I'm not saying they're going to take part in them every year like perhaps it looked like for a period of time. But this is an athletic department that desperately needs money. Uh, it's an athletic department that just went through a coaching change that it didn't want to. Now, obviously, this game was being scheduled well in front of that. I'm not suggesting uh, that those two are necessarily tied together. But $5.1 million is $5.1 million. And I can see where the uh, you know where it made sense on a spreadsheet, if nothing else. 
there's a couple things to think about here. By the way, I, I know we were talking about the hoops game. Florida State uh, finally took a, a 10-point lead uh, over Pitt, so uh, that's, that's certainly good to see. On the topic of this LSU thing, I'm interested. To, you made a point. You don't think these games are going to go anywhere. We do know that David Coburn has stated publicly that he wants to get more games in, into Doak. So if these aren't going anywhere, is it your opinion that Florida State is going to play some home-and-home high-profile series at Doak in addition to these? Uh, like and, and thus, how hard are you expecting this schedule to look in the coming years? Well, I, I have concerns with how we're scheduling in general. I do think that the con- schedules are going to transition some with what seems to be the overall expectation of, uh, of an eight-playoff team format uh, or an eight-team playoff format. Uh, but I, you know, the home and homes have, have already been put on the books. That's Alabama. That's Georgia. Uh, those are marquee home and homes that people can can look forward to. Uh, I w- would not be surprised to see Florida State participate in at least one, maybe two more kind of kickoff games uh, in the in the decade of the twenties. Uh, just makes a lot of sense, and it's I think going to be increasingly challenging for an athletic department to turn down a check like that. So I'm sure the coaching staff will have some feedback in that. Uh, I, hey, look, you know what the ideal situation is? Schedule somebody like West Virginia. Uh, it, it's not a guaranteed win, but it's you still get to cash the check. It may not be quite as big as if you scheduled Alabama or some of the other teams. But if you want to play those games, uh, I would schedule, you know, the West Virginias. Obviously, this isn't a, but like somebody of the level of Georgia Tech, somewhere where you think you're still confident in scheduling a victory or at least giving yourself a chance to win uh, while at the same time taking home a, a fat check that an athletic department like this one certainly needs and is, uh, you know, perhaps desperately needs. A good example of this is Alabama did this for a couple of years, right? They, they played Wisconsin and Wisconsin is consistently a, like a top 10 poll team. But a lot of times in the metrics, they're not really a top 10 team. We know they kind of get fat on the Big Ten West, et cetera, et cetera, that maybe they're not always the best team there. Um, they've also played some, I think they also played West Virginia to, to, to open up a year. I, playing some of these second tier Big 12 teams, I, I think makes a whole lot of sense because you're likely to be favored. It's still a non-conference matchup. I, I think the Oklahoma State game where Florida State in 2014 opened up with uh, was pretty smart in terms of scheduling difficulty. Now playing it in Dallas, I don't know about that. Like that, that would be a cool home and home potentially. Although I don't really want to go to Stillwater necessarily. But getting a West Virginia, that that makes a a lot of sense. You know, can can you play a Missouri? Will they do it? Probably not because they already have an SEC schedule and they don't really want to add another probable loss to the record. You know, can you play, I was going to say Maryland because they're an old ACC rival of yours, but now like they're terrible. So that's probably not the best example, but can you play a Michigan state, which, Hey, by the way, Ingram, we talked about the finances and the need for money. I don't know if you saw this, but Michigan state's uh, solution to its coaching search problem when Mark D'Antonio retired abruptly was just to keep throwing money at Mel Tucker over and over again, $5.6 million or whatever it was at him. Yeah. That's a that's a ridiculous contract to give somebody like Mel Tucker and happy for Mel Tucker, the individual and his family and blah, blah, blah. But that is a that is a contract that's indicative of an institution that knew there was a whole lot of uncertainty, perhaps was worried about the the direction that the searches was going in as far as you had boosters calling into radio shows and stuff like that. Uh, not just boosters, board members, excuse me. They 
threw money at the problem. And that's a, that's a nice way to solve problems. And sometimes that's what you have to do. And having something like the Big Ten Network can help you with some of these problems that occasionally roll up. And until the ACC Network's really up, running, and paying out in a manner that's uh, reflective of, not even reflective of, but just in, in the same zip code as to that of the SEC Network or the Big Ten Network, Florida State's going to have to be creative where the money comes from. And unfortunately, uh, for the fan base and local business owners, I think that part of that creativity is going to continue to see them playing in uh, either kickoff games or other kind of neutral site games in the in the schedule to uh, to make up some of that money. And we've talked about finances a lot. It's a little bit concerning to me. I'll just make this point. We can move along. This is a <laughs> this is a pretty strong period of economic growth. And if you're employed and you have a 401k, you can just look at that, what it's done over the last year or two years and seeing the overall performance of things. Florida State's got to try to get its books in order and make things work. And if they can't figure it out in a economic climate like this, that would be even more, maybe even more concerning to me as to the overall well-being of the athletic department's just spreadsheet and profit loss. No doubt, buddy. Here's a question that we, several people asked us in our, our Patreon uh, messages, but I, I just threw it in here because it's kind of football in general. When the media was allowed in the other day to watch the workouts for the the, the tour of duty uh, workouts that Coach Norvell and, and Coach Storms and his staff, Storms is the, the strength coach now, uh, that they put on for the players. You had some guys, some, some leaders, or people we think of as leaders typically, uh, wearing the orange jerseys. And as you could probably tell, orange is not a color of distinction, or at least not of good distinction, uh, for the Seminoles with Miami and the Gators and Clemson and also Syracuse, uh, all wearing orange on your consistent schedule rotation, three rivals there and Syracuse. So not really what you want uh, to wear orange, but you saw Marvin Wilson and uh, Tamari and Terry both wearing orange jerseys on the day that the media was allowed in. And uh, there's a whole lot of different jersey color combinations there. We saw some players on Twitter uh, discuss what these combinations mean, but but orange definitely means, uh, at the very least, needs improvement. What are the chances that, that Marvin Wilson and Tamari and Terry actually earned those orange jerseys? And if you had to put odds on it, what are the chances that maybe the coach said, hey, on the day that the media comes in, we're going to send a message to the players, but also to the public, that everybody's being held accountable here. And uh, you guys mind wearing the orange for today? You know, maybe like maybe maybe y'all weren't the best players yesterday for us. Uh, what, what do you think? It was surprising for me to see Marvin Wilson in particular, and Terry, but Marvin Wilson in particular. It's not an individual that you think uh, racks up a whole lot of orange jersey-worthy performances, whether he's first day on campus. Well, his practice habits have certainly improved uh, over time, but it would be a, a large departure uh, as to past precedence if that guy was legitimately racking up uh, orange jersey. So I don't want to look too much into it. Uh, if it's something that you continue to spot that guys like Terry or, uh, or Marvin are constantly wearing that uh, that hideous color, then maybe that would be of more concern. I, I think that you may be right. There may be some kind of uh, message either being sent to those outside or those inside the IPF about accountability and the fact that it is uh, has broad application. The color orange makes me want to vomit. I'll just say that. <laughs> completely agree by the way Florida State just tried to throw an alley-oop but ended up making the shot so that that worked I remember two years ago though we were talking to high school coaches that came and said hey Florida State like very publicly has their 
demerits board listed like in their locker room. Remember this? Because we like the the text that we got about it basically showed a certain quarterback as leading in penalty points, <laughs> right? Which was not great. And two years removed from that, this only works if the players care that they're getting the penalty points, that they're getting embarrassed in front of everybody, right? Like you can rack up penalty points and demerits for being late to meetings and, and not, not showing up for stuff and not going to class, disrespect people in the building. And they did, and they tracked that kind of stuff. It only works if the players care about being shamed like that publicly or shamed, you know, in front of their teammates. And maybe not shamed is the right word, but there's there's an element of that certainly here that I think plays into this. It, it only works if the players care about that, man. Yeah, if they care or there's consequences tied to it, you know? I mean, uh, not to lead us down a rabbit trail, but if there's anything that I could have whispered into into Willie Taggart's ear, it would have been to be serious what he was talking about, the single jersey stuff. Now, look, I know that's a, a small thing, but I, I do think that there's got to be some form of consequence. Uh, and, and when you pair caring and consequence, uh, then yeah, yeah, that's a situation where that could work. Otherwise, that's not going to work and it's going to go south on you pretty quickly. There was some stuff I, I didn't have to whisper to him. I just told him and, and it seemed like he got ignored. Like, you're not going to get Evan Neal. Well, maybe I meant like whisper Ash's conscious, to which he'd be like, oh, thank you, conscious. That is good. I will stick with what I said about the single number stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you don't think Nooney Murray and uh, DeAndre really rose to the, the level of... I'm uh, not sure that jersey was earned or that jersey number was earned. No, I'm not. One last bit of football business here before we switch to recruiting. Man, we are running a little bit long tonight, but I'm, I'm okay with it. Like, I, I'd much rather have a lot of content in February and, and have to have to cut some at the end of the show than just be scraping the bottom of the barrel. I feel like all these updates that we've been talking about so far tonight have been pretty solid. Uh, the ACC uh, expressed support for the immediate eligibility of transfers, uh, a one-time transfer rule to where there's no no longer have to have this ridiculous waiver concept and process and no longer like will your eligibility be determined based on like how many miles you are from your sick grandma or sick aunt it may not not even be your aunt and really determined by who can hire the best lawyer uh to to fight your claim and and determined by you know how much of a PR storm you can whip up and, and how famous you are Removing all that nonsense, just saying, hey, everybody gets one free transfer where you don't have to sit out. If you transfer again, then because we're quote unquote fake concerned about the student athletes, uh, you, you do have to sit out and focus on some academics for that, you know, if you transfer twice. But this is on the heels of the Big Ten also coming out and supporting this. Uh, and then today, the NCAA Working Committee announced that uh, it's strongly considering this. I read various reports here. Some said that it would, if approved, it would go into effect for the 2020 and 2021 academic calendar, which would include football this year. But some said 2021, 2022. So I, I don't know, like, if they vote on this, w- would it take effect immediately? For instance, would Deshaun Corbin and those type players be immediately eligible for the Knowles this year? Ingram, ultimately, I think this is uh, this is a pretty smart move for the ACC to come out ahead of this because this is clearly where it's going. You, you cannot have guys like Mel Tucker leaving three or four days after National Signing Day, screwing over the players that they're currently that, that they recruited to their school, only to you know to have like those players get stuck and your coach is gone 
and then like have have Mel Tucker making comments about how there's no there's no transfer portal. There's in no real transfer life. portal in life. I'm like what? Uh, you just transfer portal pretty hard. And called Indeed.com, Mr. Tucker. Yeah, uh-huh. like there literally is. I just went in the transfer portal. Okay, like I'm I'm proof. I feel like this is the right move by the ACC, uh, but this will not be without some consequences for recruiting. Right, like we're going to see some stuff here that impacts recruiting quite a bit, both in terms of strategy, but also in terms of like organizational structure. Man, like people are going to have to take take notice of this. I mean, to an extent, it feels it feels like this issues or this idea is kind of kind of out of the gate. Uh, to quote a, a former Florida State coach, I, I absolutely agree with you that this will have an impact on recruiting, but. Uh, I think this is general, the direction and feeling that everybody's going. And yeah, it, it'll have long lasting ramifications. I mean, we are, we're very much in the middle of a period of time of, of great change with a uh, quote unquote amateur athletics. And yeah, this is just, but uh, another one and it's going to, uh, it's going to impact the way you recruit and it's going to really impact the way you evaluate your roster uh, and how you go about recruiting as to, uh, you know, where you think you're going to be able to keep kids or, or where, you know, retention will exist. And it's uh, it'll be very fascinating to see how this plays out. If this goes through and I'm a coach, first of all, I am going to have to sort of continually recruit my roster, right? That's, uh, the days of unrecruiting your kids are pretty much over. No doubt. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say. I'm yeah. going to make sure that my kids get some playing time. Like, I, I, I don't think that the day if this happens, I, I think that the days of a lot of your starters getting 900 plus snaps in a year in a 13 game season, those are probably done, right? And playing more of your roster earlier in the year is likely to to occur. In, in my opinion, I, I think that's that makes a lot of sense uh, because you're, these kids do care about playing time, and if they get a little taste of playing time uh, more than they do now, the, the incentive is increased for the coach to reward the player with playing time to keep him in the program. And under these new rules, if you don't get playing time where you are, take the hint, right? Like the coach has every reason to play you. If he doesn't play you, they probably don't think that much of you. So that that's that's sort of my take on it. I know some schools, if this goes through, will be hiring uh, more people to evaluate transfers and basically look over rosters and look at, honestly, like this is tampering, but start looking at kids that aren't even in the portal yet to be prepared mm. oh, absolutely. in case they do yeah. enter the portal, right? They're only going to lead to a growth of staff, both in evaluating what's out there and also in trying to retain, you know, you're going to need two to three more people to talk to crazy-ass moms all the time or talk to handlers. I mean, it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be nothing but a larger strain uh, on, on both keeping your existing roster and evaluating where you're going to get new pieces. You might need a guy to, to, to talk solely to moms of receivers, man. I mean, if, if last year was any indication, so. We'll move to our friends at Madso. I am uh, happy to say that I think we've got our, our plans for the uh, spring meetup down. Going to have a real meet and greet. Uh, to an extent, this will even be a bit of a surprise to my partner here. But uh, we are going to be at Township. I am going to uh, be manning a very early morning grill. Uh, happy to uh, get the get the skills out, and uh, we're going to have some pulled pork, some ribs. Still working with Matt and his team uh, exactly what the setup is going to be, but we will have a, a real-life meet-and-greet come April 18th. Uh, I believe it's from noon to 3, and we look forward to meeting and interacting with as many of you all as possible. That should be pretty solid weather, like mid-April. It'll... 
it'll be hot, but not like crazy hot yet, right? Like I feel like April is the last month in Tallahassee that you can really enjoy the outside before it just gets insane hot. Like I don't really love being outside in, in Tallahassee in, in like mid-May, but mid-April, it, it can still be pretty solid, right? So that should be really, really good. Uh, expecting a lot of, a lot of top recruits at that game. And with that, let's transition into a little Florida State recruiting uh, chatter. The, the first item I have here is that Florida State running back commit, uh, Keyshawn Spencer. Uh, he's earned some accolades at, uh, at a camp of a, a network that competes with my network. And so obviously I didn't go to that camp, Edgar. I understand. It's a, uh... It's uh could be viewed as a rival of of yours if I'm reading the tea leaves here correctly. Uh, yeah, Spencer's a talented kid, uh, big pickup, and somebody that I expect to do nothing but good things on the recruiting, you know, the camp tour in general. Very athletic kid, so um, definitely got got to keep a, a, a name to keep an eye on, and, and you know, Coach Norvell loves those athletic backs, which Coach doesn't. I mean, I, I, obviously, but they, they've done a pretty good job with with some of these a little bit smaller backs at Memphis and at some of his stops getting those dudes in space. And so I feel like he could be a a player who, even though he was recruited by the prior staff, is still a quality fit uh, for this staff. They certainly need to continue to pursue running backs in this class, and, and they'll do so. I think Spencer's a quality fit for you at this point. Two more names I wanted to bring up here. Uh, one is already pretty highly rated. Everybody knows who he is. The other actually has no star rankings yet, and uh, we'll – We'll get to that, obviously, uh, as a network, and other networks will as well. I, for one, like that Like sometimes it takes a little while to put a star rating on a kid. I don't like just randomly assigning star ratings. I want to have at least one expert have seen the player in person, maybe talk to the high school coach, talk to some colleges recruiting the player, watch his film, don't just randomly throw out stuff. And I don't like willy-nilly assigning four- and five-star ratings to kids early in the process because then – if other kids pass them up and you have to drop them to like three-star status, then the kid gets mad at you, right? And you're like, look, man, you, you didn't get worse. We just like this other kid a little bit better. So your rating dropped, you know, basically one, or your ranking dropped like one spot for each kid that had to get moved above you, right? So if you were 10 and now we have two other kids we think are nine and 10, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're two more spots down. But the first kid I want to mention here is Marlon Dean. And Ingram, it's time to play that favorite game that we play. It's Does Ingram Know Where in Georgia This County Is? We got us a, a no-star special from random rural Georgia. This is a, a great blend of, of, of both of us. It's your yeah. time to shine, well, baby. fun. Absolutely. All right, so Marlon Dean from Elberton, Georgia. For He plays for Elbert County. Where is Elbert County? <laughs> Elbert County is, uh, if I'm if I'm correct, it's about as east as you can get in Georgia. I think it's about 20 minutes east of Athens, and it is uh, it's it's damn near in South Carolina. I'll put it that way. Dude, you almost never miss on these. That is that is pretty impressive. That, that, wow, really? Yeah, like no, Ingram is really good at at naming because if you look at it, uh, Georgia has a, a whole bunch of counties. Um, and so- we have the most counties with the exception of Texas, I believe. There's a, there was some bizarre bylaw that you had to be able to uh, you had to be able to go to the county seat via horse and buggy and, and back to your house in one day. Uh, so to do that, Georgia just created counties all over the place. And uh, I'm born and raised here, but I 
I interned down at the state capitol for two years when I was like 17 or 18 years old, and I didn't learn a damn thing other than just walking the halls and looking at maps and uh, getting into various things <laughs> that are fun during that period of time in your life. But uh, yeah, old Elberton or Elbert County, Georgia, that's uh, not not a name I expected to hear on tonight's podcast. So I wonder uh, like which Florida State coach got on him. They, they offered him in early February. My guess is Coach Atkins because... Obviously, with him coaching there at Charlotte, he would have been coaching pretty close uh, to to the border there. Charlotte being North Carolina, but still, I mean that that seems like that's not that far away from from Elbert County. Uh, six foot five, six foot six, mid mid two hundreds, maybe two sixty ish type type player. A lot of athleticism, quite a bit of upside with, with some frame to fill out as a defensive lineman. Igor, you might know that you might have heard this, but uh, Florida State is in the need uh, of some quality defensive linemen this year, and so uh, he, he's a player to watch. I I would expect him uh, to see a star rating uh, increase by quite a bit, from zero, obviously, to we'll, we'll see what he ends up at. But he's he's a guy who's on the radar of several staffs in the Southeast. My my question with him might actually be like, does he become someone who a Georgia or a Clemson or like a Bama uh, pushes for, or are you finding your sweet spot now to where like your sweet spot right now, for the most part on out of state kids is, can you find the very best kid that Georgia's not going to want hard that Clemson's not going to want hard. And that like Bama's mm-hmm. not going to want hard. And clearly if you go to, if you go to Louisiana that you better be damn sure LSU doesn't want this kid. Cause you're not going to beat LSU for anybody they really want, especially not with them winning the national title. Like last year, that's, there's probably going to be a two or three year range where you're not going to beat them for in-state kids absent, like some sort of family connection. Now for your kids inside Florida or really close to you in Georgia, like on the border, I think there there's a much better chance that you can go head to head with those out of state powers. But if you're going out of state and you have to go head to head with those, some of those schools, I don't really like your odds that much. So uh, precision targeting and figuring out where these kids will end up in the pecking order and the recruiting boards of some of these other schools, I think that's going to be an important element of Florida State's recruiting class uh, this year. The other player I like here is Dink Jackson from, from Melbourne. Really athletic kid. Uh, been, been watching a lot, lot of huddle, and uh, he's he's a dude I like. That's, that's, a fun, that's a fun highlight tape to watch. So Dink Jackson from, uh, from Melbourne. I may make it down there in person uh, in, in this eval period. So just two names. I know we have a lot of real football diehards that listen to the show, and we have a lot of people who are not Super diehard. So if you don't like the segment where I, I, you know, point out a kid or two, I apologize. We just try to mention a kid or two each episode this time of year, as opposed to doing a whole episode where we talk like 20 kids and do the real technical breakdown because three hours from Charlotte, three hours is not bad. That, there's a good chance that and we know Atkins recruited Georgia for uh, for Charlotte and is also recruiting Georgia for Florida State. So there's a pretty good chance Atkins is your connect there. Ingram, uh, we had a lot of questions in the Patreon uh, inbox uh, about UF having Junior Day on March 7th, just like Florida State is, and uh, comparing the list of potential visitors and UFs early on uh, looks better. And I would say, look, clearly I mean, we're, we're three weeks out from this, so we don't really know exactly who's going to come to each Junior Day. Uh, we also can point out that it's a weekend. So you may have some kids come on the Friday or come on Sunday. Saturday is not the only day. Uh, I do know that Miami's Under Armour camp, not University of Miami, just the the Under Armour camp for Miami, 
is March 8th, so that's the Sunday. So some of your South Florida kids, if they make it up, they may need to come up early Saturday or come up Friday for you. But at this point, yeah, I would expect UF to have a better junior day. UF just went to -to back-to-back New Year's Six slash BCS games, and, and they're pretty hot on the recruiting trail right now. I think they've made some moves to uh, to adjust to some of the recruiting flaws that they had uh, in the first couple of years and, and made some key firings as well. Maybe some guys who were not getting the job done inside the recruiting office who, who were later dismissed. So question is going to be, like, how many of these big kids that you're in on show up on your campus in March? If you don't get them on your campus, then you really need to kind of drill down and figure out, man, like, all right, which of these kids do we need to stay on? And like, do we have a defined reason? And the reason can't be we're Florida State. That, that is something that, like, there's a lot of things that we thought early on that Taggart and those guys were doing well, but that was something that we did not like about them immediately. It was like, wait a second. Now, it wasn't in spring because in spring we didn't know at the time that, that the O-line was going to totally fall apart like it was, and you know, they ended up going five and seven. When things started to fall apart, they didn't cut bait fast enough. Here, you need to make sure that you're in on the type of prospect that can change your program, but also that you have a chance to sign. you got to thread that needle, and the spring evaluation period is going to be important for making evaluations of how good players are, but it's also going to be important to evaluate how much these players actually like your school and how much distance you have to close between you and other schools if you want to be a real player in their recruitment. And this is going to be a test for Coach Norvell and his staff to see who they can get on campus. Of all the the recruiting powerhouses out there, uh, UF is not one that scares me at this point. I realize they're not quite the full juggernaut. Uh, but yeah, I would expect them to be in front of Florida State when it comes to getting in front of a lot of these kids, if for nothing else, continuity. Uh, recruiting is something that we will touch on in every show and continue to, uh, to talk about. And like I said, if Florida State's concerned about falling behind a lot of people, Florida, at least at this point in time, hasn't put together an absolute proven track record that shows that they're going to start lapping you in state. Anything else you want to touch on in recruiting before we kind of transition into questions and a little bit of our other sport conversations? You know, I I did want to highlight two articles that that I wrote for 24-7. One was basically this thought that, like, are the best teams getting better than they've ever been before, right? Like, are, are the are the top three or four or five or six or seven teams, are, are they sort of vacuuming up more of the five-star talent in a given year than they have been before? And this is something that, uh, this is why you dig into the data as opposed to just popping off, because I thought the answer was going to be yes, for sure. It turns out, it depends on how long of a timeline you define, right? So, for instance, if you look at just over the, t- the last 10 years, we are seeing like the best four or five classes in a given year sign a higher percentage of the available five stars. However, when I when I put the timeline back to 15 or 20 years, what we're actually seeing is that from like, you know, 2010 to 2015, there was a dip. The rate we're at now is actually the rate that we were at for basically 2000 to 2011 ish. So the what we're seeing right now, the results are not abnormal. They're like they're basically the norm for most of the history of college football in which you had recruiting rankings. 2010 to 2015 was sort of the 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 abnormal, the, the outlier period there. Um, we're sort of back to to the norm. 
uh, here, but it is a change compared to like the early half of this decade. The other thing I want to point out, and I, I'm here, I'm looking at is college football becoming more of a global game, not not in terms of like internationally, but like is the world becoming smaller in college football? Are players going out of state more, especially elite players? And one thing, and I'm not going to give away the whole article because I think it'll come out on Wednesday or Thursday on 24-7 Sports. And thanks to all of y'all who, who did sign up for that. Uh, very, very encouraged by, by that. Uh, those numbers. Two of 14 five-stars have stayed in state in the state of Florida over the last five years. Yeah, I'll be fascinated to see your article. I, I would think, if nothing else, what's happened in Florida and what's happened in California is going to lead to some very interesting numbers. Hey, uh, trivia question for you. How many playoff appearances so far by teams from California, Texas, and Florida? Playoff has been around for, uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, six years, four spots a year. So that's 24 spots. How many of those have been yeah. filled by the, by teams from those states? If I say one, am I missing? No, you got it. Two for two. One out of 24 playoff spots have gone to a team from California, Texas, or Florida. That's nuts. Crazy, crazy hard to wrap your mind around. But yeah, interesting. I don't think that's going to sustain. Uh, I don't think it'll stay. Yeah, no, not long term. I don't think it's going to change any time in the in the near term either. Uh, just when you look at some of the flagship universities and who's who's at the helm right now, that's uh, like <coughs> USC. Yeah, um, I would agree with you there. Quickly before we get to baseball, I want to tell you about Resolution Home Loans. Resolution Home Loans is where I got my mortgage, helped me secure the Resolution Home Loan Studios at my house here in beautiful Orlando, Florida. I got hooked up with Shannon Young. Shannon's the best guy in the game. He has knowledge of the industry. He's a big Noel fan. So when you call him, it, you guys will talk some, some mortgage, but you'll also talk probably Florida State, Norvell, who's wearing the orange jerseys, all that jazz. He's he's into it. I mean, Shannon's texting me on the regular about this stuff, and uh, he, he takes full advantage of, of the sponsor inside access to those guys in, in the podcast. But he is, is a passionate dude about his work. We like passionate people who give people good, good results and, and really good products. And he's an awesome guy to work with. 844-FSU-LOAN or FSUHomeLoans.com. That's 844-FSU-LOAN or FSUHomeLoans.com. I actually need to uh, order a couple more shirts here for our latest uh, customer. We passed 40, by the way. So we, we have officially more than 40 uh, homeowners via the Nolcast Loans program. Crazy and very, very much appreciated. Uh, thank you to to all of our listeners. And uh, yeah, Shannon, Shannon and Chad are as uh, <laughs> enthused and invested sponsors as you could have. And, and so with Matt, I mean, it, we're fortunate to be able to pair with people who share a, a real passion for the program. But uh, yeah, those guys are those guys are very authentic in uh, in their concern for the direction of the program. No doubt. Baseball. So let's have some overreaction to baseball, bud. That's what I feel like doing. Uh, here, here we were blowing some losses. You know, baseball, just being baseball. So I, my Twitter just lit up about the baseball team. I was like, uh, what month are we in? We're in February. Like we're, we're just just checking here. Like we're in February. There's no real spring training in 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 college baseball. So these guys are playing their first game. We're going to flip out about a loss to Niagara. I, look, here's the deal. They lost to Niagara in pretty excruciating fashion. They couldn't throw strikes. They they made some calls that like traditional baseball people don't like, but now pretty much everybody's being paid millions to run baseball teams with 
make, you know, and like they've run the simulations. They understand why you probably don't want to bunt there, um, especially early in the game. But the real thing that stuck with me was like judging a baseball team on the first game of the year is like judging a football team based on like the first eight or nine minutes of the football season. Like that's about the equivalent, right? Cause you play about 50 baseball games, you play 12 football games. So that's, you know, 48 quarters. So basically like one game is, is equivalent to like a little bit less than one quarter of football. And nobody would judge a team based on just 10. Nobody probably should judge a team. Like a lot of people will for sure judge a team in football on the first 10 minutes, but should you, Probably not. It's really not the sample set that that we would suggest using here at the Nolcast. And, and I know we're the analytics nerds, so, you know. But 10 minutes is really not the best sample set. One baseball game, also not the best sample set to use. I, I think this team will be able to pitch. I think they'll have some improved defense at most of the positions. And, and my guess is, is that Meat will, will find some hitters here. And this will be a pretty quality baseball team. They did bounce back to pound Niagara. Uh, in in the next game, so you know, I ultimately I wouldn't be too worried about this. And uh, for the people that emailed us and said like this just confirms the nepotism hire was the wrong choice and blah blah blah, I, <laughs> y'all may be one hundred percent right eventually about the hire. I thought it was a pretty solid hire, especially with the risk reward of it not that expensive and um, it's college baseball, right? Like it's not going to tank your athletic department. You screw up one college baseball hire. But I may be wrong, and y'all might be right. But there's no way you have enough data to know right now that you're right or wrong because we've only played like a couple of college baseball games, and we're not even in conference play yet. Like we're in, we're basically in spring training. Relax. The Florida State baseball fan base is uh, is like as emotionally a wreck as as any that there is out there, and I understand. I mean, I, I get it. But uh, there's, it just seems to be an awful lot of permanent distress that exists, and uh, a whole lot of people that are looking to confirm things based off, you know, ten minutes of time or whatever else. So uh, I get it. Uh, I certainly hope that uh, that part of the fan base gets to experience a whole lot of success. But uh, I wouldn't go worried or convincing yourself that success is not to come because you lost a game against Niagara. Baseball is baseball, and Sometimes things like that happen. Uh, <laughs> happy to report that the best basketball team's taking a 20-point lead. Uh, there's about three and a half minutes left in the game. I expect a whole uh, whole load of the Caucasian closers to be out on the out on the court here sometime <laughs> soon. Uh, but, uh, uh, another really ridiculously good win for a program that's just stacks wins and wins every game at home. Ho hum, no big deal. Just a uh, just another another Florida State win at home over a pit team. Oh, uh, speaking of don't judge a team based on one game, do you remember the first game Florida State played this year? Yes. To some some team named Pitt who uh, happened happened to get them with an early And some out. ridiculous yeah. fouls called in that game. Florida State has three conference losses on the year. One of them is to a not very good pit team. If we If we judge Florida State based on their opening basketball game, we would sound like idiots. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I don't know. Pump the brakes on that stuff. I will say, someone also who sounds like an idiot, we don't talk about pro sports that often here, especially not pro baseball. But uh, 
Did you see what the baseball commissioner said about the World Series trophy? I did. Yeah, that's always a good good example of really valuing your brand and <laughs> in, inflating value whenever possible. Crazy, crazy comment. Like uh, we're talking about the fact where what did he just refer to it as a piece, piece of, metal of metal or whatever? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's good. Good, good on you, guy. Also, like this is absolutely the slowest sports time of the entire year. I mean, like we're, we're yearning for the Masters to come up, right? Right. Like, yeah, I was going to say we basically. Wait until the second week of April at this point. There's no NBA games for four nights. Like we we have the All Star game. That's it. Baseball is not started. College basketball, okay. Like it feels like the conference season is going on forever. College baseball doesn't really matter quite yet. The NFL amazingly doesn't have anything going on right now, and they're masters of keeping themselves relevant by scheduling mini camps and free agency and all these sort of like news making uh, items. The NHL I think is in season right now. Uh, and I only know that because I, I do bet it occasionally with the help of a, a guy I know. Am I missing any other sports? I, I don't think so. Like, if you say something stupid or do something really stupid right now in sports, it's going to make the ESPN ticker. And normally, it probably wouldn't because there's enough stuff to talk about. There's enough stuff going on. Right now, ESPN has about a million little things about this Astro scandal on the bottom line because there is nothing else going on in sports. We've got LeBron James weighing in. On the Astros scandal, we have Aaron Judge weighing in. On the Astros scandal, we have John Lester weighing in. On Rob Manfred's comments about the trophy, saying that that comment hurt a lot of guys. Okay, probably not. That seems a little excessive. I don't know about a lot of, a lot of pro athletes being hurt by the comment about the just a piece of metal. Uh, and Lester said, take his name off the trophy if uh, uh, if he doesn't um, if he doesn't value it. Blah blah blah. Like this is my point. Anything right now that goes on is going to get blown up. So let's get back to questions because that was kind of boring to even me. But uh, we have a couple questions and emails. They're brought to you by our Patreon members for the most part. A couple from email and Twitter. Uh, I'm not sure how many we're going to get to tonight because we are almost at an hour. I think we'll just do the two or three and then we'll get to some other ones uh, probably next episode. But uh, yeah, patreon.com slash nolcast. And, of course, our questions, by the way, are also brought to you by... Banging on the keyboard. Uh, yes. That, J-Rob, that is that is where you come in. You, 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 you nuke that banging. <laughs> it's staying this time. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, no, no, because no, then people are going to think I don't know Travis Johnson's number by heart, and I'm pretty sure I do, but like I, I always want it for reference just in case. I can do the ad reads, and then I, I blank on his on his phone number. So this is our Ask the Ask the Expert segment, uh, of course, brought to you by Travis Johnson, family law attorney of the Metter and Johnson Law Firm. Look, y'all, family law is, is a pretty serious deal, and everybody's got skin in the game, more than financially, but also emotionally when it comes to family law. You want a real expert on your side. You want someone who has at least a decade of experience in this game. Travis Johnson has that. He is a board-certified family law attorney. There's only 280 of those in the state of Florida out of over 110,000 attorneys. He's also taught family law. He knows what he's doing. He knows each case is unique and he has the experience to handle your specific situation with the care that it deserves. And there's so many things you're thinking about because family law involves people you care about. Get the best out there. In our opinion, Travis Johnson is extremely well qualified. 850 435 
855-435-9919. Take that number down, 850-435-9919. You never know when you're going to need it. Cases throughout the state, he'll come to you. Bud, we will transition to our questions here. This is uh, something that, uh, ironically enough, we talked about almost borderline teased at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, Philip asked, what do you guys think about the ESPN preseason FBI rankings of the Knowles being a top 25 team? You guys have been talking about them going 5-7 and seven or at best 6-6 six and six this year. What is the cause of the jump in the preseason poll? Okay, so let's break this down. First of all, I would take issue with them saying, or with Philip, who, by the way, thank you, Philip, for joining us on Patreon. Uh, I don't think we ever said at best six and six, right? I just said I think I would start sort of there and then see what else happens with this team right now. So let me take it into the eyes of the computer. My friend Bill Connolly, I've talked to him about this and uh, I, I mean, granted, I've worked with the guy for like a decade, so I understand what goes in it, largely what goes into his model. And with, without giving away his secret sauce, I will give you basically Bill's computer's view of the Florida State team. All right. So, what does it see to make this Florida State team a top twenty-five team? First of all, let's start by saying this is a power rating. This is not a projection of win-loss or where they will end up in the polls. Okay. Bill's computer sees, I think, like roughly eight and four. So you could end up ranked. You could end up not ranked. Uh, whatever. It's a power rating. It's not one of these, hey, they have, a, they have a soft schedule so they can probably run the table. FPI, uh, similar. It's both. They're, they're both power rating metrics. They are not like metrics that take into account how many games you're likely to win. What what do they see? First of all, they see a team that still recruits at a, at a pre, pretty high level relative to the rest of the nation and even largely uh, relative to its schedule, right? Like Florida State does out-recruit West Virginia, and it certainly out-recruits Boise State. Um, there's clearly some inefficiencies there, I think, with the recruiting rankings and, and some of the kids Boise State gets based on how often Boise State outperforms its recruiting rankings. But Florida State is going to be a supreme recruiter compared to most of its schedule, and that's that holds true this year. We know recruiting rankings on the whole are, as much as people hate them, are extremely accurate at predicting which teams are going to be good and which teams are not going to be good, especially at the very top, which Florida State resides sort of in that upper tier of recruiters. Not like the top five, but certainly kind of in the top 15, 20 range. So it sees a team that it believes to be pretty talented. Okay, so you have talent. Then it has returning experience. Those are the two main factors, right? Returning experience, returning production, and, and talent are the two sort of outside inputs that it looks like or that, that it looks at. And here, what does it see? Well, it sees an offensive line that actually has a, a pretty good amount of starts. It sees a ton of returning production at the receiver position. Uh, I don't know, honestly, if they've adjusted for Trey McKitty going to Georgia yet, but if they haven't, that would make even more sense for how high forced it is. I'll, I'll have to have to text Bill and ask him if, if he still has McKitty there. I know sometimes they do transfers a little bit later in the summer. Um, they see a quarterback in James Blackman who has a ton of experience and has thrown a million passes in college and has thrown for a good number of yards. And the computer doesn't see, man, James Blackman was like inconsolably upset on the sideline at the end of the Sun Bowl and kind of emotionally melted down at times. It, it doesn't see that. It just sees how many yards he threw for, how efficient his performance was from a numerical standpoint. That's what it sees in the offense. 
defensively, it sees, hey, they got Marvin Wilson back and they've got a bunch of other impact guys back. They've recruited pretty damn well overall on defense and they return a whole lot of experience. I mean, who do you lose off last year's defense who you feel like you're going to miss? A couple guys, but but maybe not a ton of guys. So it projects a pretty solid defense for Florida State this year as well. Uh, it does not account for coaching changes. I, I know SP Plus does not. I'm pretty sure FPI does not as well. Uh, there's no such thing as the first-year coaching bump. That's a, a common message board thing, but we actually, like, Bill's looked into that before. I had this discussion with him many times on Gchat, and th- there is no uh, automatic bump or dump, really, for, for a first-year coach. I mean, it's, it's just all over the board, the potential results that you can possibly have. Uh, so that that is not accounted for. So it's not like, hey, Florida State is a new coach, and they'll they'll win a lot more games because of it. Where, in my opinion, are the biggest discrepancies between what the computers see and what I think of this team, and I think what Ingram thinks of this team? We would agree that that first, it starts with offensive line. The computers are seeing, and by the way, the the third component here is they look at at performance of previous seasons. And what they're going to see is that Florida State has not been very good for the past three years. But at the way they recruit, the odds say they're gonna they're gonna improve and bounce back. I and mean, there's definitely something to that to some extent. I agree. Uh, however, I will note that I think that that the computers basically assume Florida State's offensive line is going to be a lot better than it is because of the recruiting rankings. They just kind of say, okay, they have some start, they have some starts back. There's a good chance that this just works out fine and and, and it bounces back. I don't know that these ratings 100. percent account for just how bad the offensive line has been. I think they look more at the offense overall as opposed to just the line. If you don't project the offensive line to take a huge step forward and bounce back, then you probably don't agree with with these rankings at this point. And they're accounting that they they think there's going to be a step forward here with that. Do you think that James Blackman is a major asset right now? Because I can pretty much guarantee you the computer formulas which I use heavily in my wagering, by the way. Like, that is the basis. Like, that's what I start with when, when, I, when I do my own personal ratings. And then I adjust based on my opinions of some of these teams for factors that I don't think are reflected in the rankings. Like, Ingram, I don't know about you. I, I'm not ready to completely write off James Blackman, but I'm not looking at him and thinking, man, he's clearly a top three starter in the ACC. Like, not a chance in hell. Mm-hmm. But the computers see that much returning production with him and they think, and that's that's awesome. You got some receivers right now who, who are also hurt. Do we know what what the status is going to be with, with with Helton and those guys? Because the computers seeing those dudes as returning production and returning yards, and and it actually values receiver quarterback re- returning combo more than it does offensive line because studies have shown that the offensive line returning starters thing and cohesion thing year to year is a a little bit more narrative than it is evidence-based. Not that there's nothing to it, but it maybe not quite as important. And receiver quarterback is oftentimes very important. We don't know if these receivers that are coming back other than Tamarian are going to be healthy and good. Like, How much better is Keyshawn Helton going to be this year than he was last year? Is he going to be better? There's a chance he backslides. He's coming off injury. He's not going to have much of an offseason. So the computer doesn't know that he's hurt for this offseason. So, these are things that we have a superior knowledge advantage of relative to a computer that has to look at all 130 teams in college football. So that is where 
you know, most of the discrepancy comes from. And it's fairly easy to see how someone accounting for those might come up with a projection that's maybe like a full win different than than what the computer systems see, in, in, in my opinion, at least. No, that's a really good breakdown. Uh, enjoyed listening to you. You know, obviously, it's a unique point of view, being that you worked with Bill for as long as you did, and you have as uh, good of an idea as to how that algorithm uh, accounts for things, what it values, what it doesn't. Uh, hope our listeners enjoyed that, and you get a little bit better idea as to where some of those numbers come from. They also get better, uh, I will say, over the summer because like more data is going to come out and more input on like the makeup of a roster. Those type of things are going to get factored in. This is pretty preliminary right now. I would not probably take some of these ratings to the bank for uh, for February. Next question comes from Michael. Uh, I feel like we maybe we had a similar question. Maybe I just have read something similar to this, but uh, a very interesting question. Michael asks, in this scenario, Mike Norvell would have been made the coach at Memphis from 2016 to 2017, then would have come to Florida State in 2017 immediately after Jimbo left. Willie would have been at Oregon from 2017 to present, unless you think Mike Norvell would have been fired after just two seasons with Florida State, and then Willie would have come to Tallahassee the day after the Pac-12 championship game in 2019. I'm just trying to see if you guys think we could have skipped the Willie Taggart experiment and hired Mike Norvell in 2017, or do you think the Florida State program and Seminole Boosters had to learn this lesson the hard way? The first coach after Dembo was fail, was doomed to fail no matter who it was. Give some compliments to the podcast. It says you've been listening since 2015. Uh, Michael, we appreciate your input. All right. So let's, let's, let's break this down. So you would be hiring Mike Norvell, who only had two years of head coaching experience, right? Uh, ever. Now, I, I think Norvell is a pretty organized, button-up, like, driven guy, just in, in my talking to him and, and talking to other people who know him. But at the same time, you would be hiring somebody who only has two years of head coaching experience, period, as opposed to Taggart, who had, what, eight, I think? I mean, Taggart had four times the amount of head coaching experience. And I think there's an argument to be made now that even though Norvell only has half the experience when he was hired at FSU as a head coach uh, compared to T- Taggart, that, that he is potentially more equipped uh, than, than Willie was. But, but Ingram, I don't know. Can we assume that that would have been the case after just two years as a head coach at Memphis? I, I don't know. At the time, that would have been an outrageous hire to even suggest because he, we did not have the evidence that he was not just taking over for what Justin Fuente left, right? I don't, uh, I very much agree with you. And I don't think we can scoff at uh, the president's comment <laughs> the day after he hired Mike Norvell when he said that he was on his radar for 2017 and we he wished he would have given him more consideration. Um, and we, we questioned the legitimacy of that. And then at the same time, point to the fact that he would have had any kind of resume or CV that would have been reflective of him taking the Florida State job at that point. Yeah, exactly. We, we laughed at that at the time the president made those comments. So could it have worked? Yeah, yeah. So that's the interesting part of this. I'm not sure I agree that the the guy after Jimbo was doomed to fail uh, at all. Now, he wasn't going to win anything immediately. He got left with a, a real uh, fecal matter sandwich to deal with, uh, but it's not... I don't think he was necessarily doomed to fail. It's a really interesting question here, and, and I'm, I'm glad we picked it tonight. 
do your offensive linemen get hurt immediately if you hire if you hire Norvell? I mean, like, does that happen again? Does Josh Ball end up getting kicked out of school for for the domestic incident? Like, those are are key things to me that really help to shape that year one, which in large part kind of set everything in motion to to go downhill. From a recruiting standpoint, they were killing it really through July of of 2018, and then the season started, and they went five and seven. Uh, for a variety of different reasons, probably the biggest one, which was just the the complete lack of players they had there on the offensive line. If you set Mike Norvell up with that same situation, uh, I think that they would have recruited worse over the summer for sure, because nobody would have known who Mike Norvell was at that point, and Willie was established as a pretty good recruiter. So the questions to me, the relevant questions would have become, A, did Mike Norvell... At the time, if you had hired him, would he have would he have sold this as a quick flip as opposed to a rebuild? Right? Would he have been more tempered in his comments? And we can't really give him the benefit of hindsight here because like there's no way he could have known how the season was going to play out in 1819. So a lot of this comes down to would he have managed expectations both internally and externally better than Willie did? Would he have more accurately evaluated what he had on his roster? And then how well would he have managed that talent on his roster to the extent that you can manage it? Because at some point, I mean, like you got a kid scoring a zero in the Syracuse game over like 20-something snaps on the offensive line. I think it could have worked. Do I think it would have worked? No. I, I think if you hire Mike Norvell in 2017, he gets fired. Maybe not after just two years, but I think the lack of experience as a head coach uh, and what we know happen to the roster. If you keep the roster stuff largely the same as far as the parts that are out of the coach's control, then I think he gets fired. Well done on the Willie Taggart. He did have indeed eight seasons as a head coach, five winning seasons and three losing seasons. I knew it was like three, four and one. So that's eight. Yeah. You're probably not going to get the four state job with just two years head coaching there in Memphis. Oh, also the the other point I want to bring up is would they have the level of support staff that they have now, right? Like in 2017 or for 2018, are you able to hire a chief of staff? Do you get to make those type of hires that now it seems like the administration has realized you you probably need, whereas at the time they clearly didn't think they needed those? Yeah, I think that's, and that's interesting when I, when I read the question, that's really more the lesson, the hard way to take away from this is, is not so much, in my opinion, that the the coach after Jimbo was doomed. It was more that you can't you can't count nickels and dimes when it comes to the football program and then expect to compete at the highest level. Uh, a very interesting kind of hypothetical there. Hard to say, you know, once we see how Norvell performs in his first couple of years at Florida State, maybe it'd be worth revisiting. But all in all. It would have been a real hard sell uh, to give that guy the Florida State job in 2017, regardless of how we may think it ends up at this point. I think the affirming thing is it's nice to see that your university was willing to buy out Taggart to turn things around. Like, I think that's really encouraging. Definitely. Certainly a move that didn't, you know, nobody wanted to make for a variety of reasons up until a point in time where it became clear that, you know, maybe it was really the only move to make. Lesson learned with uh, with Taggart and hopefully lesson learned as far as the uh, broader support of the program. All right. Uh, so Kyle, uh, who Kyle, uh, we have to give Kyle a shout out. Kyle is the dude who sent us the uh, suggested career starts game that we played uh, last week. We got some good feedback on that. That was pretty fun uh, to do. 
And uh, so Kyle said he's going to apply as a uh, assistant show producer, which I, I got a good chuckle out of that. All right. Application accepted and uh, and given, Kyle. Congratulations. Oh, he would say that. <laughs> Nicely done. Kyle says, I read somewhere that the expectations for a five-star uh, should be an impact player for three years, four-star for the same for two years, and three stars hopefully one year. With the most garnet and gold tinted sunglasses ever, in four years, FSU can play up to 60 games, 12 regular season, conference championship, two playoff games per season. That is definitely rosy. Uh, long story short, I was curious uh, when we could expect these guys to actually see the field and play pivotal roles. FSU taking away factors uh, like health and attrition. So I gave all the skill players uh, uh, rated four stars 20.5. This is him explaining how he came up with these numbers. Uh, roughly a starter for two seasons. Three stars, 12.5, roughly a season. Uh, and made an exception for the QBs at 24.5 because when those guys become the guy, they typically hold on to that position and stay healthier, though with our offensive line, that assumption may be unwarranted. I think this can be a supplement to the blue chip ratio uh, in determining the strength of a class and, and tell how good of a job the staff did in meeting needs beyond warm bodies with a position next to their names. Based off the picks you both made, and my logic, right or wrong, Ingram thinks that the staff hit with 12 guys who are going to live up to expectations during their FSU career, and Bud thinks that only nine guys will. That's kind of matches my feeling, yeah. I, I, I don't think a whole lot of this class. I wonder what a good number for hit rates is on a class. Further research needs to be done that I don't have time to do, uh, and no expectation either of you uh, to make the time to do it either. Although, actually, I might steal this idea and write it on, on 24-7, potentially, at some point. Uh, also, can you educate me and all the other fans uh, what a reasonable level of impact is to expect for five stars down to three stars? I hope the day uh, never comes that FSU is pulling two stars and below to fill a class. No, I, I don't think that will uh, will happen. Kyle says, thanks again for featuring a question. And as always, go Knowles. Kyle, we really appreciate the support for the show there. So uh, I'm going to read to you all real quickly here uh, the uh, what 24-7 defines uh, as a five-star, four-star, three-star Etc. So a five-star, they say, the top 32 players in the country to mirror the, th- the 32 first-round picks in the NFL draft. These are the 32 players that we believe are the most likely to be drafted in the first round from each recruiting class. The full list of 32 with five-star ratings typically isn't complete until the final ranking. Any player with a rating of 100 or more, that's like their actual rating as opposed to their, their ranking. Like, you know, they do the numerical rating on like a, you know, 70 to, to 110 scale. Uh, is a franchise player that does not even come around every recruiting class. So then four stars. These are players uh, that we believe are the most likely to produce college careers to get them drafted. By National Signing Day, this number is typically in the range of about 350 prospects, roughly 10% of all prospects in a given class. Three stars. Uh, this is where the bulk of college ball prospects are found, uh, at least at the FBS level, uh, I'll, I'll add. Uh, and I might make that change on our website pretty soon. Uh, and it incorporates a large range of ability levels, all of whom we consider as possible NFL players long-term. So, nowhere in there does it say they're expected to start for any number of games. And I think a large reason of that is, if I get a four-star at Cal, I'm probably going to expect him to start more games than if I get a four-star at Alabama. Why? Well, because the the, the competition level is different at, at each program. So I don't think there's really a set in stone number uh, of, of starts that we can necessarily expect from, from players. Uh, now there's some reasonable assumptions that we can make, I think as podcast producers here, if you're a five star, uh, 
why are you a five-star? Is it clearly you're going to have both floor and ceiling, at least to some extent, right? You can't be all ceiling or all floor, but some five-stars are going to be more floor and some five-stars are going to be more ceiling, right? Uh, So if you're a five-star that is primarily a five-star because you're already college-ready size-wise, then yeah, I think it might be reasonable to expect you to start north of 25 games in your career before you go to the NFL. But but what if you're a five-star that's more kind of ceiling-based? That's tough. Like it, it might be something totally different that how do, how do we project that? And what if there's competition at your position? For instance, uh, DJ Amule uh, is going to Clemson, the, the, the kid out, out of Bosco in, uh, in California. Well, when he gets there this year, there's this kid named Trevor Lawrence who's still going to be there. DJ is not going to start over Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence is like probably going to go down as the best quarterback in the history of the ACC. So, how do, you, how, do you, how do you break that down? How do you project that? Team context matters a whole lot. Um, but Inger, if, if if Kyle's right here, what do you think? Like, Do you think 12 of the 25 being hits accurately reflects your your opinion of this, this class? Uh, judging by the way that he broke it down there, I, I think it's fairly uh, fairly accurate. And and again, it's, it's for where we are. I mean, those 12 picks – at least four, maybe five of them I had along the offensive line. I, I can't remember exactly. I mean, look at the way – so kind of to speak to what you were saying there, but look at the way that this program values Robert Scott right now. Okay, that's a three-star prospect that's an offensive tackle that, from Florida State's perspective, that's a three-star prospect who's like a, a five-star when it comes into as far as wanting to develop and get into the program as quickly as possible. Um, so – Obviously, all of these things are, and um, trust me, I'm not trying to pump you all up with with a uh, false optimism about Scott and say that he's a five star. I'm just saying, as far as where prospect meets need, he's about as big of of a pull as you could get right now. Uh, I really like what Kyle did there. I think it's a a little bit of a different way to judge the class. Something we can circle back to and and monitor over time, as everyone loves to remind us that sometimes we do, occasionally we don't. How how twenty four seven breaks it down. I first got into recruiting when I was like ten years old, and a lot of the stuff you'd get you'd get from magazines at a grocery store. I'll have to take a picture of this, bud, and send it to you. But this one guy who he was operating off of a five star basis. This is like the early nineties. He described a five star as somebody that would compete for you know national awards, Heisman's, uh, Buckus, etc. Four star in in year one or two, a four star was a guy that would be in all conference or uh, compete for awards in year two or three, and then a three star was a guy who had the potential to be all conference, maybe even compete for awards uh, in his final two years of of college. So uh, basically, if you if you signed a three star above, you had a chance at uh, a real big hitter there. It was a, a great example of some of the early optimism that was sold and, and pushed in the recruiting circles. I, I really want to see those next time I come up to uh, to Atlanta. Oh, I'm I've got gonna... a box of of old school recruiting stuff that I've talked about sending to you for for four years, and maybe now that we actually have a proper business shipping account, I'll send that on down. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a old school look at uh, at the way that people have tried to make sense of this rating system since about the you know earliest part of the late '80s, early '90s. Awesome, man! I'm I'm excited about that for sure. All right, uh, I think that should probably wrap it for tonight's show. We did 
God, I, I don't know when the last time we did 80 minutes. That's uh, that's probably not very good show management. I, sh- I should I-, I should be a better businessman and stretch that into two shows of, of 40 each, but uh, the people like it. So we're, we're going to go ahead and do it, and I think we're going to do at least one more show in the month of February. Uh, so, yeah, get excited. going to be a good February. Five stars on iTunes. Fantastic. Thoroughly enjoyed it, as always. Five stars on iTunes, as Mr. Bud was saying there. Uh, any kind of support you give us, greatly appreciated. We look forward to seeing you all, as many of y'all as possible, for the spring game. Thank you. <laughs>